For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good evening, everyone. Uh, so I'm very happy to have um, giving the talk tonight David Ray, who is one of the head doans at Ancient Dragons and Gate. Uh, when he's not helping out at Ancient Dragon, he is also a professor of classics at the University of Chicago. Thank you, David. Thank you, Tygen, and good evening, everyone. See you here tonight in the Zoom Zendo. Um, so I know everybody here, I believe. I think I'm seeing everybody who's, who's on here. Um, I am maybe not the newest newcomer here on Zoom right now, but I'm one of the newest newcomers to Ancient Dragon. Um, I started coming in January 2020, so I had about two months of practice in the Irving Park um, Temple before before we all went inside to hide from the virus. Um, I'm kind of a Zoom Temple rat. This is the the Monday night is what I attend the least often, but I'm but I'm mostly on Zoom. My schedule, my professor's schedule allows me to to do the morning uh, the morning sits um, on Zoom, and that that's what has been working for me. It feels like a monastic schedule, and I really like it. Um, I am indeed one of the head doans, and here's a fun fact: the number of times that I have been a doan in a temple setting is precisely zero. Um, that's a <laughs> that's a tribute to the weirdness of the time that we live in um, and, and of Zoom. That's another reason why everybody who can should sign up to be techno, because then I can take a turn at learning to be Doan, and that would be really nice. So tonight I want to talk about devotion, and uh, uh, my talk could have two subtitles. One, sub one subtitle could be, Why I Am Not a Dual Practitioner. Um, and being a dual practitioner is a very valid thing to do, and many wonderful Zen practitioners have been that. And I think maybe I've been a dual practitioner most of my life in some way or other. Um, and when I found my way here, when I sort of washed ashore here, I have uh, th th this feels like my practice, the one practice that I'm doing, and that's surprising and wonderful to me. And so the, the second subtitle could be something like a love letter to ancient dragon Zen gate and to Soto Zen Buddhism. And when I, when I mentioned that to Taigen, he very appropriately did a sort of awe, you know, the sort of re responding to the, to the kind of maudlin quality of that. So, um, in honor of the fact that, um, Dylan read this marvelous phrase from Hongju on Friday morning saying, uh, the most romantic thing is to be not romantic at all. Let me just ratchet down the romanticness of that and say that I didn't expect to like Soto Zen Buddhism, and I didn't expect to particularly like, you know, the, the people at Ancient Dragon before I came. I had never been to a Soto Zen uh, or to a Buddhist practice community. At that particular time in my life, I knew I needed a group to sit with. I had an 11-year mindfulness practice. Uh, but I figured that there were going to be a lot of religion things that I, that I might not like and, you know, just, just all the, the things about, about religion and religious communities that I, that I had thought I disliked, um, I thought I would find here. And what I find instead is, uh, well, among other things, the warm, kind heart of devotion. 
Devotion for me, even more than ritual or dignity, is the word that comes up um, when I when I think about this this question. What what is what draws me to this particular practice community? Um, some people point to the dignity of of the forms and ceremonies, and and absolutely that. And for me, it feels it feels even deeper the 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 warmth of devotion that that I um, that I experience as being expressed. Um, so I'm not going to, to do a thing of, of pretending to be a, a scholar of Buddhism, which I emphatically am not. So I'm not going to try to tie devotion to particular words or phrases in, in Buddhist scripture or, or tradition someplace. But I do want to think about this word, devotion, because I like the word. And I'll start by thinking about the adjectives that this word bears in English. Devotion can be simple, humble, quiet. Right? So it can be simple like, like breath. It can be constant, steadfast, wholehearted devotion. So it can be, you know, uh, stout, steady, like, like a pillar, like a wall. It can also be fierce, rigorous, ardent, right? So it can have that quality. It can be sharp like a, like a sword. But uh, not only because I'm a classics professor, I want to geek, geek out even deeper down into this word. Uh, devotion, because I think it points to a range of human behaviors and practices that it seems to me that that our tradition incorporates, but also transforms. So devotion is a Latin word. It comes to us through French, you know, because French speakers conquered English speakers in 1066, and our language still bears all the beautiful wounds of that trauma. But so the, the, the root, the root is the word votum, V-O-T-U-N, votum. That's our word vote. But it is also our word vow. And in Latin, it also means an ardent wish. So when I was about, I don't know, six or seven, the doctor, the, the surgeon that my mother worked for, uh, for over 30 years, who used to send things home to me, it was very sweet and very kind, um, sent to me this, this, um, it's actually a pharmaceutical advertisement. And it has a, a picture of a, of a heart on it. And it's a Greek heart. It's a, uh, it's a metal heart. And it's, it's, it's nailed to, to a wall. And to my amazement, uh, I didn't realize that I still had it, but I went to my campus office and it's, you know, it's over 50 years old and I still have it. Um, Mike, will, will you, will you show the reproduction of the, of the image? Um, so it's it's a flaming heart. Um, it's not the it's not the same as the Catholic Sacred Heart. It's done in metal. It's got rivet things that look like rivets around it, which I find really striking. And then in a way that is kind of wild to me, um, the the metal has been. It looks like it's been nailed to this stucco wall. Um, thanks. So you you can you can take it down, Mike. So it's actually like a, it's an ad from a pharmaceutical company that, that, that the surgeon got for like blood thinning medicine or for hearts or something like that. Uh, and on the back, it says ex voto, a votive tablet, you know, like like votive candles. And speaking of that, the word devotio in Latin also means a magic tablet, like a curse tablet or a prayer tablet. You know, magic being uh, making things happen in the world through words and acts. Uh, and so devotus also means bewitched or enchanted, uh, being a devotee and opening out into the ghostly occult realm. So everything that I named, all the connotations that I just named of devotion, you might have noticed belong in one way or another 
um, to, to this tradition, to this Soto Zen Buddhist tradition, definitely including the, the connection to the, the ghostly realm and spells too, right? I mean, Dharani and the, the word that we translate as mantra in the Heart Sutra, um, you know, in, in the Chinese text is saying something like this, something like this is one not ordinary magic spell right here. So that brings me to a question, which is what got me started on this, this, this talk or thinking of what led to this talk. Why do we as Zen practitioners do things that look like prayer or even sacrifice, you know, like offering incenses, incense or flowers, all, the, all those things that Dogen points to as, as non-essentials in, in, the, in the chant that, that Mike chanted? Because on the ordinary understanding of those things, you know, sort of an anthropological understanding, they, they look very dualistic, to put it mildly. Right? One person is, is praying to a, seems to be praying to a divinity, and people think of that as, as belonging to a transactional kind of bartering interaction, where I give something and, I'm, and I want to get something back in return. So obviously these physical actions have a very different significance when we do them in, in a Buddhist context. But it also seems to be, I mean, um, from, from the little that I've learned about, about Buddhist history, that, that things like ancestor worship forms, uh, and, and, and other forms of worship and, and, and ritual that were, that were pre-existing, uh, became adapted and incorporated and also transformed into the, into the tradition. That's one of the many things that absolutely floored me when I, when I learned, began to learn about this tradition from, from being here. Um, that really seems beautiful to me and that, that, that makes it, um, not just appealing, but, but feels like, feels like home to me. Um, so what follows is in four sections, four very short ones, because I'm going to stop when the, when the big hand is on the, uh, on the six. And the, the four sections are called Sangha. And there I kind of talk about religion. They're called, uh, the second is compassion. And there I talk about love, including Eros, love. The third one's called Wisdom, and I'll say a thing about Zazen. And then finally, a very few words about devotion and our remote practice here in the online Zendo. So, um, what do I think that I get, or what do I think happens from these um, uh, perhaps inessential, but so um, intensely, um, for me, and I think for others, appealing and um, attaching um, forms? So the first thing that comes to my mind under the heading of, of Sangha, um, it feels to me that, that embodying, being, having the opportunity to embody these practices, both by myself and, and in um, community, things like offering incense at home um, and still doing that in a very do-it-yourself do it kind, of, kind of way, as I'm learning, learning forms, but it feels like an embodied connection to a community that spans continents and millennia. That's always felt important to me. Um, must be connected to my classics professor thing, but, but being connected to ancient dead people feels really important to me. I think that's some kind of human um, need, or at least it's, it's a need that I feel. It's a hunger that I feel. Um, Huineng, the, the sixth uh, patriarch, uh, has, there, there has two phrases in, in the Platform Sutra that, that, that really are um, 
sticking in my, ringing in my ears right now. One is Jungle Rat. Actually, the fifth patriarch says that to him because when he, when he comes to the fifth patriarch, the, the um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Hong Run says to him, you want to be a Buddha, but you're a southerner and you're a jungle rat. So, so that's probably not going to work. And there's another moment where Huinang hears the, the Diamond Sutra. I think it's when he hears that. And he says that he, he's aware he feels a pre-existing affinity with that. Right? So, so not just deja vu, but it, but it's like not just already seen, but already, already connected with, I'm hearing this thing and I'm already feeling, um, a connection with it that somehow was already there, but I didn't know it was there. I feel like I've always been a jungle rat or maybe dumpster rat to make it urban is, is a, is a better, better way to say it, uh, in my spiritual life. Um, and, uh, yeah, so this is, uh, again, perhaps the last place that I expected to find this sense of pre-existing um, uh, affinity. It's really true that all my life I said, you know, um, one thing I know is that Zen Buddhism wouldn't wouldn't be for me. I'll just have to find some other way to be spiritual or whatever it is that we're being, because that's that's not an ideal word world word for me, spiritual. But um, for most of my adult life, I'm somebody for whom spirituality and sexuality have been deeply and weirdly interentangled. Um, I'm not going to do a, a way-seeking mind life story, but I'll say it this way. Um, for years and years, most of my life, checking the two boxes, um, religion and spirituality, on any kind of uh, form, like a hospital form, have been very fraught for me. Um, for sexuality, I wanted to say something like, well, um, is there something like uh, not straight and let's say queer um, I've been married to a woman for, you know, some number of years. We were married for 23 years. Um, it, none of the, none of the options felt good and I didn't like the word, uh, bisexual. For religion, I wanted to say something like, well, how about, how about Catholic syncretic or something like that? Because I don't really feel comfortable with monotheism and I don't really feel comfortable with the fact that I'm allied with a tradition that, you know, that, that says that um, the sin of Sodom is one of the sins that cries out to heaven for vengeance. And, and when, when the American Psychiatric Association took homosexuality off the DSM, uh, the Pope responded by saying that homosexuality is an, is an objectively disordered um, condition. Happy Pride Week, everybody. Uh, by the way, the other three sins, I just have to say this, that cry out for, for uh, heaven's vengeance in, in, the, in that list are murder, oppressing the poor, and um, uh, defrauding laborers of their wages. Those would be great uses of the, of the energy of the Supreme Court. Those would be great uh, places for them to seek to be agents of divine vengeance rather than, rather than um, you know, um, making the, the sodomy laws that are still on the, on the books of many states um, become active again, which is, which is the kind of language that, that, that we're hearing coming from, from some justices. Um, so, yeah, um, by the time that my, um, marriage with this wonderful human being, Kristen, ended, um, in January 2020, um, I was more like the gay roommate of my beloved, um, wife than, than like her husband. Uh, uh we had stopped attending mass a few years before, um, I said to her one Sunday, why don't we try not going? And she said, good idea. And the next Sunday, so when I said to her, why, do you want to go back? And she said, no. And I said, why? She said, well, two reasons. 
She said, I'm a conjurer, you know, I'm, I'm excommunicated. She was a, sham a shamanic practitioner and a Reiki practitioner at that point. And, and, um, you know, she said, well, you know, they, they, if, if, if the political power existed to burn me at the stake, she said that they would do that. Um, that may or may not be right. But, um, she also said, and the other reason is that you and I, David, don't have any way, shape or form version of a, a Catholic marriage. And that was certainly true. Too. So we had been doing um, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which sometimes people call mindfulness, you know, sort of um, uh, <laughs> dismissively, uh, you know, back to my um, claim to be a, a dumpster rat. And I'm so grateful for those 11 years and for that practice. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of really, there's a lot of real fineness in um what John Kabat-Zinn uh, promotes and and teaches. Uh, we lived in a dorm for uh, 10 years as, as resident faculty, and we did um, an MBSR for 20 minutes, you know, once a week for anybody who wanted to come. Um, and I'm super grateful for that. So in January 2020, when Kristen moved out, among other things, I had lost my meditation buddy, and things were not looking good, and I knew I needed to find uh, my way to a group of some kind, some people I could sit with. And uh, my, my dear friends, um, Wade and Mike, had been at Ancient Dragon for a year. We had been talking about that. And so uh, that's when I washed ashore at um, Ancient Dragon. I vividly remember the, the first day and how much warmth um, I felt, how much kindness from the people who, who greeted me. Um, Asian, you were there. I remember our, our conversation and, and um, how much I appreciated your, your kindness. Um, there was so much joy and dignity in the in the work circle, um, in in the space, um, so on. I could say more, but that's 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 probably good on the on on the uh, you know sentimental gushing about how wonderful the first day was. But it was the next thing that happened uh, in in my journey that was that was crucial was um, after my first Okusan with Tigan, I read Faces of Compassion. That was a big surprise to me. Um, Pretty much everything that I thought about Zen Buddhism was not the case. Um, Mahayana Buddhism utterly took me aback. The, uh, I was expecting a sort of, uh, you know, Augustinian, Christian, Puritan style theology of karma. That's, that's what I thought Buddhism had. Uh, and I, I couldn't have been more wrong. I also thought that the Zen Buddhist cosmos was an empty cosmos, not peopled. And I was greeted in, in Faces of Compassion by this beautiful flowering of bodhisattvas in the, in the universe. It was overwhelmingly wonderful for me. Um, the devotion of the rosary had been a really important thing for me in, in Catholic years. Um, there was a time that I was real, I felt really drawn to monastic practice. Um, and so, you know, here's, I've, I've got my mala, you know, and the, um, the private devotion connecting to various bodhisattvas, um, it's, it's, it's hard to describe it really. Um, it's certainly, it's certainly non-essential, you know, as, as Dogen says in the, in the chant, um, but there's so much, there's so much comfort in it. Um, and, and again, the, the element of skillful means, there must be 
I don't know if it's been written, but there must be a whole anthropology about the human behavior of holding beads and passing them through the fingers and, and the sense of going around, you know, going around the garland. It's called a garland in both languages, right? Rosarium is a rose garden. Mala is the name of a garden. Um, strange set of, set of connections. Um, you know, and so I read about the, the bodhisattvas and the ones that I was attracted to personally. I found mantras that worked for me. Um, and, and, um, that's a, it feels like a new way of being in, intimate with myself, frankly, intimate, intimate with my thoughts, intimate with the world, um, and, and experiencing these bodhisattva energies as companions and guides and teachers. Um, so seeing uh, Hui Neng's uh, mummy, you know, the, the, the blackened mummy with a mala around his neck, I haven't seen it in person, but you, know, you, you can Google it and, and see it. Um, is very exciting to me, and and it and it's accompanied with the thought, look, that's my ancestor, you know, uh, and and I, I've got my mala in in my hand as well. That sense of bloodline. The first time Taigen said to me that the precepts are more about a sense of bloodline and uh, and and lineage than they are about um, uh, like, like like a set of 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 um, conduct code uh, rules that. I wasn't quite sure what he was talking about, but now I, I, I feel a, a, a sense of that. Um, sewing, sewing the Rakusu, sewing Buddha's robe with, uh, with Hogetsu um, feels like uh, an embodied deepening of that sense as well. Um, so the, the, the sense of embracing and sustaining all things. So that was the longest of my shorts, uh, short sections. The next one is under the heading of compassion, um, because I want to talk about uh, I want to talk about love and romantic love and being a love monster and the the, the kind of the the, the love that is a, a, a species of the poison of greed. So what I peddle in my in my profession is Latin and Greek poetry, and for all the ancient Greek and Roman poets, students are always amazed and astounded by this and don't know what to make of it. All the poets universally speak of love as disease, pathology, malum, which means both a disaster and also a, um, a, also a disease. The, the, the first book of Virgil's, uh, the fourth book of Virgil's Aeneid, where Dido has fallen in love with Aeneas, opens with a line, but the queen, long since wounded with heavy care, where care means both pain and love, is nourishing her wound with her veins and is being plucked and harvested by an invisible fire. That's, that is how, that's what love is in the Western tradition. It's like that in, in the courtly love tradition. And that's what passes into um, popular love song. It's, that's not entirely absent, of course, from, from for example, the, the East Asian uh, tradition. But a thing that happens in other religious traditions, it's in Christianity and it's in Hinduism, it's in other traditions, is that um, there are versions of religious devotion that, 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 that are infused with a lot of erotic energy. Um, when I was in graduate school, I would go to, to, to the art museum on campus and there was a beautiful painting that showed uh, a Hindu painting of milkmaids, the gopis. And every few go, few milkmaids, there, there was, there was Krishna again and he was you know, teasing, uh, or he was erotically encountering 
uh, one of one of the milkmaids, and it was a you know it's a depiction of the soul's interaction with with the divine. There's obviously lots of that in English language poetry, so it, um, and and in European poetry. And so one of my questions that, that I've been sitting with is, do we have anything like that in Buddhism? Um, I'm about to sound like Aristotle. I think the answer is kind of yes and kind of no, but more no than yes. Um, yes, there's a, there's a body, there's an embodied intimacy to things like prostration and touching the soles of, of Buddha's feet and lifting them up. There's an in- intimacy in sewing Buddha's robe. Um, I had a, a personal experience that felt like like a, a, an embodied intense connection with Buddha when I was in in China, and, and it took me by surprise. This was in 2015. Um, uh, I was teaching there; it was the first time I was there. Uh, my students all said to me, "Oh, you you have nice things to say about Buddhism because you're American, but here, you know, we know that Buddhism is a low it's a low religion. People just show up at the temple if they want a baby or they want to pass the exam, and you see them prostrating." And I went to the Lama Temple and I saw someone prostrating, and I was I was kind of overwhelmed by how beautiful it was, and I wanted to do it, so I I, I did it. You know, I did you know I did my best my best imitation of what I had seen. And I bought, uh, I bought some incense and offered some incense. And now I had participated in other kinds of rites like Hindu rituals before, but this felt like a big deal. It felt like, wow, if I, if I do this, something, something's going to happen. Something's going to shift. And I did it. Um, I had a dream soon after that. And I guess I was in the, the Lama temple and one of the big golden uh, Buddhas bent down and, chastely um kissed me and what what to make of that you know um i could i could try to be like a buddhist mirabai and you know write sort of love poems about uh, about buddha's kiss um but i'm more inclined to think of it as a kind of some, something that my mind my heart was ready to experience both as a seal and as a kind of maybe a kind of healing of that of that sense of 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 shame that 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 I you know that that I'd so imbibed from a tradition that that um that regards the kind of being that I am as um as abominable. I I totally get it. <laughs> you know, East Asian culture is not always everywhere welcoming to homosexuality. I have a young friend who came out to his parents and his father called him something that in Chinese translates to depraved hermaphrodite. So, you know, I, I, I don't mean to say that, that there's nothing but tolerance for, for, um, for alternative sexuality in, in Buddhism. Um, but, but, um, but there certainly is here. And one of the first things that I saw when I walked into Ancient Dragon was a little sign for, um, the, uh, LGBTQ Dharma group, uh, which I am committed to keeping going as, as a number of, number of us are. Uh, because that that speaks volumes, uh, you know. A statement about we are an inclusive community, n- no, thank you. But <laughs> you know, but 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 having having a, a, a real named presence that that's a very that's a very different thing. Um, I, I experienced some other Buddhist artifacts. I climbed the um, Iron Tower in Kaifeng, which which inside is just Buddhas and Buddhas and Buddhas and. Um, I don't know much about who made the, the, that artifact, but, but I received the gift of the energy that those artisans and, and the priests who guided their hands, uh, put into that. And I saw a huge statue of 
thousand-handed uh, Guan Yin, not really understanding anything about the teaching of why the why the eyes on the hands, but but so deeply, wonderfully moving. Uh, the next section called Wisdom is about Zazen. Zazen as enactment of devotion, something that, that Taigen has written about a lot, but Zazen also as object of devotion, the thought that Zazen um, enacts Buddha body and Buddha mind, but also that when one person sits Zazen, as Dogen says in the chant that Mike chanted, that we chanted, everything sits Zazen. So even uh, the, the words, when even one person sits upright in meditation, displaying the Buddha mudra with one's whole body and mind, then everything in the entire Dharma world becomes Buddha Mudra, and all space in the universe completely becomes enlightenment. To my ear and heart, there's a devotional intensity in those words, a kind of arousing of the vow of, devo- of devotional warmth. Um, there's also a sense of total faith there, faith in something outside one's own mind, faith in something that functions and helps unfailingly. That word is in there. So I want to say a really good, loving, grateful thing about about Catholicism, um, which has this uh, this teaching. It goes by the Latin phrase "ex opere operato," and it says, "Okay, some other versions of Christianity. Maybe this is true, or maybe it doesn't say that that what, what you know Catholic, what Catholicism calls the sacraments." It says that they operate by by the work of the one doing the work. So the better you do it, the better but the better the effect. And Catholicism says, no, 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 no. You can't get it wrong. You show up, you have the intention to experience the thing, and it's unfailing. Uh, you know, just as when somebody says, I'm not good at Zazen, you can't be not good at Zazen. <laughs> there's there's no there's 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 nothing other than just sitting and it's not for me it's none of my business whether that was a good sit or a bad sit if i if i become aware that my mind you know was was full of waves and weeds that's a sign that i that i had the opportunity to take the backward step and and become aware of something that i wasn't aware of before um yeah uh i'm intensely grateful for that teaching that is that is so on tap here in this place. Um, I hear the end of of the chant that we chanted as as a warm outpour outpouring of devotion to zazen. It has the flavor of the uh, the, the flower ornament sutra, so I'm going to read that. You should know that even if all the Buddhas in the ten directions, as numerous as the sands of the Ganges River, together engage the full power of their Buddha wisdom, they could never reach the limit or measure, or comprehend the virtue of one person's zazen. Um, that's, that's the pure, the pure warmth and heat of devotion. So to close, devotion and Zoom. Um, being the, the Zoom guy a lot, the Zoom host, what we now call the, the, the techno, um, is is very moving. Uh, it's it's a lot of other things. It's 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 nerve wracking. It's tightrope walking. It's 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 frustrating, but it's also wonderful. It's beautiful seeing the private devotion of of people in private homes. It's so beautiful seeing private altars and the intimacy, 
the vulnerability. This is a word that, that, that I heard you use one day, Hogetsu, about this experience of, of seeing, seeing people in, in the intimacy of domestic space with, um, with, with devotional practice. Um, yeah, so, so for me, this has been a, a mainstay, a, a, a place that warms me with devotion in the, the, you know, the cold grief and pain of the, the lockdown time. I'm well aware that, that I'm a fortunate person for whom Zoom feels like connection. It feels like presence. I feel like I'm seeing you and talking to you. I'm feeling like this is, this is just what seeing and talking to is. Yes, we're not in the same room. Yes, we're not, we're not experiencing all, a whole realm of whatever you want to say, proprioceptive cues about each other that we would be experiencing in, in, if we were in the same space, but we, but we are connecting through the, through the senses. Um, and, um, maybe it's especially both painful and, and beautiful right now as we have, we have a space, we have a meditation space and I don't know about you, but I find it so moving that <laughs> that once the opportunity to to have um, a priest in the temple uh, opened up, it's like the, the 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 doshis just sort of once that beachhead was was established, the doshis rushed in because there are so many ways in which the presence of a priest in our meditation hall feels like it's it's not it's not it's not for me it's not for us it's the that's that's a devotion that that reaches out you know into the in, into the whole community of practitioners and and everywhere everywhere through throughout space and time um yeah and and while i'm saying that about about being a zoom techno i'm serious um it's 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 crazy. It's wild. It's it's painful. It's annoying. I see I see Wade and Mike smiling a little bit. And you should do it if if at all you have the opportunity to to do it. Come and enjoy the the craziness of of being a Zoom, um, of being a Zoom techno. Um, thank you for listening and um, thank you for being here. And I'm really eager to hear um, thoughts about devotion and experiences about it. Thank you very much, David. Uh, please, comments, responses, uh, anyone? Yes, ma'am. Hi, Nilzan. Hey, David. Thank you very much. Um, one of the things that occurs to me in your talk is that there really seems to be in the way that you described it, um, almost like an indissoluble link between devotional practices and sort of embodiment, physicality, all those kinds of things that came into your talk in a number of ways. And frankly, that's something, even though sort of the sort of more devotional uh, aspects of my own practice are all in that vein, you know, of, um, you know, the things that Dogen lists, bowing, offering incense at home, those kinds of things. I had never noticed this. I never, it had never occurred to me, oh yeah, this is something that I'm actually like out 
I'm doing, I'm touching, I'm lifting, I'm putting. Um, and I just never, it, it just never even occurred to me. And I'm just wondering, it sounds like you've thought about it a lot. And I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. I mean, for example, um, it, are there devotional practices that, I mean, I know that we can think of things, but are there devotional practices that just take place here? Or does it automatically involve that sort of like link with the, the world? Hmm. 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 Thank you for that question. Um, a sentence that somehow got left out of my talk is, is the thought that, uh, that devotion, the word devotion refers both to a set of attitudes and also to a set of practices. Um, I, I personally think that devotion doesn't have to be embodied, but, but can be, but you know, devotion can be reading. It can be doing some kind of, uh, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I talked about Zazen as, as devotion, but, but I take it that you're, you're referring to things that are, that are other than, than Zazen, the kind, the kinds of things that Dogen would say, you know, these are, these are not essential. These are not Shikantaza, but, but, but they're also just part of culture and, and Buddhist culture and community. Um, I think so. I mean, um, hmm, I don't know. I mean, I guess seeing counts as doing something, doesn't it? Like, you know, looking at, looking at statues. Um, maybe the answer is, I mean, I, like what, what would be a disembodied form of, of devotional practice even? I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a question. So thank you. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Nilsan. What occurs to me in response to that news is just um, mantra or jarani, not when it's in voice, but when it's uh, just uh, silent. Wade, did you have your hand up? I'm just, this might be a stupid question, but David is used to those from me. Um, and I'll get the answer I deserve, uh, which is... Um, Devotion is always to something, yes? Uh, and, in, and in that case, our devotional practices, like what are we devoted to? What are we practicing devotion towards? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that's a great question. And, and I, I think maybe that question... Um, so I'm going I'm to go into a realm where I really don't know stuff, but, but I know that... Um, I know there's this word kuyo. I think it's I think it's kuyo in Japanese, and at least some people say that that word translates the word puja in Sanskrit. Did I did I did I fade out for a minute? Am I here? Um, and you know, in the Hindu tradition, that's definitely offering stuff to, to to somebody. So it does seem way like both words and also practices that in that in earlier forms were dualistic. Right, you know, are now in our in in our tradition, but bowing is dualistic on most ordinary understandings, right? And and Suzuki Roshi says to us, "Don't bow dualistically." Well, what does that mean? I guess that's that's a koan. It's not just we're both both bowing to each other, right? It, that I don't think that sort of that solves it. What does it mean to bow non dualistically? So, I mean, I, I, um, yeah. 
I hope you're not disappointed that I don't think it's a stupid question. I think it's, I think it's really a fundamental question. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're bowing, if there's no separation between the self and others and you're bowing to others, then you're bowing to yourself. And it's this weird kind of like, or it's not weird, but it's devotional practices uh, in Buddhism or devotion to the self in a certain way, or the self in the other, the other in the self, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's talking in circles a little bit, but mm-hmm. we understand the point. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that. Um, the Jungians like to like to distinguish between big self with a with a with a big S and 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 self with a little S. But I, I hear you. So the, if you do it sort of with mathematical substitutions, it it it, it does start to does start to get all tangled up. Yeah, yeah. Hi, Asian. Um, thanks for a thought provoking talk. I certainly don't know the answer, but um, when I think about devotion, I think about um, the process of giving oneself um, to something, you know, to, to an activity. And, and yet I, I, I think that, you know, devotion, at least within our context, is not a transaction. We're not giving something to get something back. But we do get something back. And I think that kind of speaks to the mysteriousness of the three wheels, giver, receiver, and gift, that we are in the process of giving. Um, you know, we receive something. But I don't think, but I don't think we, I don't think, I, I think devotion is, is maybe best when you don't approach it with the idea of receiving. You just, you just give, you just, you just bring something, yourself to something. And um in that way, you could be a, a devoted partner, you could be a devoted, you know, golfer, you could be a devoted um, practitioner. Um, I think of it as like devotion to you give yourself to the activity itself. Uh, yeah. Thank you for mentioning Donna, right, in the context of devotion. Um yeah, and the thought of like like becoming a gift by be, being so devoted that, that that you become you become a gift you become like utterly given over to the thing that you're devoted to. Yeah, your your mental your mental activity itself is an offering. Mm-hmm. I'm going to mull, mull on that for a while anyway. Okay, so did you have a question? Yes. Uh, David Ray, thank you so much for your enthusiastic uh, presentation and reflections. I was thinking about wholehearted practice as devotion, as sort of the way in which Buddhists talk about devotion, and also the practice of taking refuge, you know, or giving oneself, I think, a little like Asian completely. But, you know, I think in the Jiju Zamai, there's something, there's a line that says something like, and all this occur does not occur within perception. So I don't want to say anything more than that. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Hogetsu. Um, yeah, I love that word so much, wholehearted. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, um, I think that's one of the first words that I saw in, um, that, that space in, um, um, ancient dragon. I, I'm, I'm forgetting the, the, the layout, but there was a place where, where books were, and I just happened to see the wholehearted way out. And, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a thing I think that moved me about that Greek heart, that it's a heart nailed to a wall. And, and as something like, something like wholehearted, something like being all in, um, being in something with, with my whole heart. Um, the opposite of, um, things like ambivalence. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But so thank you. Thank you for that. I'll just add in something that you can't comprehend. Yeah. So that's an interesting facet. We say inconceivable. 